Welcome to Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Kiersey. Fully Automated is a show about contemporary controversies in world politics, committed every episode to bringing you cutting-edge commentary and insight from scholars, journalists, and activists. Fully Automated is a show for people who care about power, resistance, and critical thinking. We hope you'll like it enough not only to subscribe, but also to help us spread the word by leaving us a positive review on iTunes. Importantly, the podcast is open platform, meaning that we are also interested in having guest presenters come and host the show. So if you have an idea for a show that you'd like to present, get in touch with us by Twitter. You'll find us at username at OccupyIRTheory. We'd love to hear from you. On this week's show, we're talking about the new McCarthyism with our guest, Dr. Tara McCormick, a lecturer at University of Leicester. Tara writes on security, foreign policy and legitimacy. Among other things, she is interested in how traditional conceptions of military and territorial security have been displaced in the last few decades by the concept of human security. In 2010, Tara published a book with Routledge entitled Critique, Security and Power, The Political Limits to Emancipatory Approaches. Here she writes that critical security theorists tend to justify their own moral positions against the background of increasingly redundant models of international security. Such theories, she writes, and I quote, try to represent themselves as critical voices from the margins, challenging contemporary power relations in the world. However, as she notes, while we might imagine that this shift towards human security would be a good thing, empowering and perhaps even emancipating human beings from the grip of the logic of national security, what critical theorists tend to overlook is the extent to which their preferred solutions already resemble contemporary practices of securitization. After all, under conditions of neoliberal globalization, the implementation of human security has, in practice, often fallen on coalitions of foreign states and NGOs, entities which are unaccountable to those they claim to wish to help, and whose work therefore risks trapping the subject of security in a whole new set of power inequalities. Tara, thanks for joining us today to talk about the new McCarthyism. Thank you. Uh, Perhaps you'd uh, help us just uh, off the bat by talking a little bit about uh, your current work. I noticed you for example, use the term legitimacy as a as a focus point. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more about what that is to you? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm really interested in, well, I've always been interested in questions of um, intervention um, and the way in which big powers are exercising that power in the world. Um, but what I've got very interested in of late are questions about Uh, the relationship essentially between the state society and how that plays out in terms of foreign and security policies. And I think one of the really key developments in democratic societies in the last few years has been what Peter Mayer, the Mm. political theorist, called the growing gap between uh, the government and the citizens. Um, And I think... He was, you know, he's been writing. I mean, he's right. unfortunately he he died, yeah. but you know, he's been writing about this for quite a while now. But I think we're really seeing it now. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we're talking about Brexit, Trump, 
uh, you know, and also developments in other European nations, for example, mm. the rise of the Front National, et cetera, et cetera. So I think now we're really beginning to see it. And I guess what interests me from my perspective is how this uh, separation between state and society then plays out in terms of foreign and security right. policies. Um, so, th yeah, that's my work. So, you know, the current political context is really interesting, alarming, and in, but interesting as well, because I think we're really seeing these problems playing out now. Do you see uh, the current moment as kind of a, a, a blowback that Peter Mayer might have anticipated? Um, well, I think it's certainly that we, it, it's almost, we're seeing the real concrete manifestations of this gap yeah. happening now. Because, you know, for a long time, you know, it's a sort of staple of domestic political work, falling voter turnout, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more fluid electorate, etc. But right. I think really with sort of Trump and Brexit, we're seeing two quite serious um, examples of the consequences of this, uh, yeah, this growing gap between the electorate or between the state and society in a way. Well, um, that's an interesting transition, I suppose, to, to my first question of our topic, uh, to do with our topic today, uh, which is to do with uh, President Trump's uh, press conference yesterday, uh, which was a, obviously a pretty amazing spectacle. Um, we had his first... Um, one-on-one -on -one, uh, press conference or in-person press conference in the wake of the resignation of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn as a national security advisor. Uh, Flynn was, of course, already uh, seen as a pretty scary guy, mm. uh, having tweeted prior to the election that Hillary Clinton was involved in money laundering and child sex trafficking. Uh, he's also in the past made quite uh, incendiary claims about how Islamists are trying to turn America into an Islamic state. Uh, but the resignation does come in the wake of uh, leaked reports from the FBI that Flynn may have had illegal communications with uh, Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak uh, before Trump was inaugurated. Uh, Flynn is alleged to have discussed uh, the sanctions imposed by the Obama administration in Russia back in December. Um, all that, of course, in response to reports of Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. Now, according to the Washington Post on February 7th, uh, FBI officials have said they don't believe Flynn had intended to make any explicit promise to Kislyak um, about the sanctions. So in that sense, it's not clear that anyone is saying Flynn actually broke the law. But it does appear that Flynn may have obfuscated or indeed lied to the vice president, Vice President Pence, on the matter. And therefore, his resignation was required. But Tara, um, all of this comes in the wake of what is now kind of a uh, a real litany of allegations and theories of Russian interference in, in U.S. politics over the last couple of years. Um, can you talk us through some of the high points here? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult really to oh. pinpoint anything. I mean, just when you think things can't get any more crazy in terms of the anti-Russian hysteria, you know, events surprise you and it gets... Even worse. I mean, a, a very minor event in the scheme of things quite recently, but I did have to laugh when um, one of our UK Labour MPs, uh, Ben Bradshaw, claimed that in the House of Commons that probably uh, Putin had been, you know, been had been behind the Brexit vote as well. And then, you know, you really have to laugh at that point. So what else? Um, but I think for me, 
um, there are some kind of very important problems um, that I think are a far bigger threat or or danger really than right. uh, you know Russian uh, hacking into Podesta's email if that is what happened, which of course we yeah. don't. There's, there is no proof um, really. Uh, you know, so but I think there are two very kind of big problems. I think the most alarming thing that has emerged during this whole discussion the last few months is the way in which liberals and many on the left have basically embraced the secret services um, as defenders of democracy. Yeah, you see that um, kind of counterintuitive yeah, I mean, this shows a level of uh, sort of naivety of historical ignorance, actually. I mean, even of recent history. We're only talking about Iraq, Gulf War Two, I should say. Uh, you know, that, it, it, that it's actually truly alarming. It shows almost a complete abdication of any kind of political critique or contestation or resistance, however one wants to call it, when we have you know, progressives embracing the secret services. So I think that's mm. one of the most, mind, to me, one of the most alarming things that has come out of this whole scandal. And in a way, or alleged scandal, and in a way I would argue that really the reactions that we're seeing to the Trump election and presidency are far more of a problem. Right than the Trump presidency itself. And I'm no fan of Trump mm. uh, by any means. But I think the way, yeah, the, the kind of political uh, reactions to the presidency are, I think, will ultimately pose the most serious challenge, uh, you know, for democracy and ultimately for any kind of progressive politics. Actually, yeah. we might all give up now if if we think the CIA is our friend, yeah, or yeah. MI five, or MI six, or Mossad. If we think they're our friends, yeah. okay, we're done. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we're absolutely done here in terms of any kind of progressive politics. Uh, just a reminder that we are joined uh, today by Dr. Tara McCormick, a, lector, a lecturer at University of Leicester, and we're talking about the new McCarthyism. Tara, you've just um, said something that I think maybe some people would find a little bit shocking, that, you know, you'd be more worried about uh, the response to Trump right now, and it's cozying up to the intelligence apparatuses um, than, uh, than the Trump presidency itself. Uh, one response to this assertion that I've seen floating around in social media is that, you know, the McCarthyism term is mm -hmm. a kind of a highly charged one. Uh, it's a very problematic comparison. Uh, after all, Joe McCarthy uh, attempted to purge dissidents in American society, smearing, barring, and blackmailing civil servants, artists, journalists. Uh, the attack was a wide-ranging and, and scattergun attack on basic civil liberties. It concocted a series of associations that tied communism to all manner of dissident positions and lifestyles. So, so clearly we're not quite at that point. Is it not perhaps a step too far too soon to say we are today living in new McCarthyist times? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, certainly <coughs> McCarthyism itself was obviously an episode of hysteria within the hysteria of the kind of red menace right. scare. Um, the context in Europe was always a little different in that in Europe you always had sort of 
functioning or non-functioning communist parties that right. still make you know uh, were quite active. Um, in the broader context, of course, you know the early days of the Cold War, nu- the Russian explosion of the nuclear bomb, Korea, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so yeah, that isn't where we are now. But I do think there is something there in thinking about what's going on in that sense. I mean, just I was thinking of this. Let's take the focus on Russia today, okay? Which is what everything sort of boil always boils down to. It's Russia today. If Russia today had achieved even a fraction of what is claimed for it. I mean, my God, this would be the most successful propaganda outfit in the whole of history. You know, it would be, you just have to take your hat off to say, wow, that is incredible. We see this incredible hysteria, okay, around a reasonably small TV network, okay? Um, Now, what is Russia Day? It's a channel that reports on that you know that has new that gives news from a sort of russian perspective in terms of say international relations you know the view will be very different from american or european mainstream or european state run media such as the bbc and of course it is state run although we like in britain to think it's not but of course it's state run you know when russia today talks about the ukraine it blames kiev for example. Now, we don't see any of that when, you know, it talks about Syria. The argument is clear. Assad needs to be defended in order to defeat um, ISIS. Now, the point is, you can agree with those positions or you can disagree with them. Indeed. Right. But they are what they are. What they are not is propaganda or misinformation or as Michael Fallon called it, you know, weaponized disinformation. Right. God only knows where people get these phrases. Yes, that is fake news. The argument that Ukraine is the problem rather than Russia in terms of the Crimea crisis is a political position. Mm. Okay, you know, agree with it or not, but what it isn't. It's a political position. It's fake news. Mm. Um, And so I think, what is alarming for me, and to kind of link it back to the kind of McCarthy discussion, right. is the way in which there are no longer, it's no longer permissible to have a political position. You know, to have a political position that does not fit in with the kind of mainstream political view is not to have an alter, you know, a political position. I disagree with your analysis of that war. This Here's is how why. I, yeah. <laughs> here is who I think is, you know, where the problem is. It is, it, it is to be immediately to be condemned in kind of very highly moralized, emotive terms. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm even thinking about just recently when Corbyn, uh, the Labour leader here, you know, made, I think, an absolutely correct point that NATO deployments are in escalating tensions with Russia. Yes. Corbyn was all but called a traitor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true. You know, I, I'm always one for proper historical context. So it's a good question to ask me. So, yes, yeah. we're not in a McCarthy situation, but, but there are echoes of that. And I think it's particularly in, this, in the way in which to make 
an argument, a legitimate political argument mm -hmm. about things is being recast, almost as being beyond the pale. You know, well, it's not, you must be, uh, you know, kind of Putin's patsy right. if you think that. And there's no attempt to argue there. Yeah. And I've had this kind of conversation with uh, colleagues. And so there's no attempt to argue. The argument is simply, yeah, well, you just, you know, you're just an apologist for Russia. Right, right. Which is absolutely crazy. And, and that does, to me, have echoes of this kind of McCarthy thing. That, that there's no longer room for political contestation. You know, if you're making that argument, you're simply a Russia apologist. So yeah, in that yeah. sense, I would say, you know, yeah, we, we can go too far with the analogy, but there is something there as well. Right. In this kind of squeezing out of legitimate political disagreement, I guess, and debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Syria there. Uh, you also sort of um, pondered a little bit sort of the, the, the origins of this and the extent to which it, it was McCarthyist or not. Um, I came across in, in researching this a piece by Frederick de Boer in an online publication called Current Affairs back in November. Mm. It was entitled 1953 to, to 2002 to 2016, Syria and the Reemergence of McCarthyism. And here de Boer notes that uh, actually his own grandfather was the target of, of, of a McCarthyist uh, agenda. And, um, and so it's a term that his family doesn't sort of invoke lightly. But he writes of the early 2000s and how hard it was then to feel that America, you know, hadn't been swallowed by some kind of like culture of paranoid, aggressive patriotism. Um, it was indeed a McCarthyist time, he says, because, and here's the definition, because what was questioned was, and I quote, not only the correctness of your position or the wisdom of your preferences, but your loyalties, your motives, your character. Yeah. So uh, this paranoid mode, he says, is kind of returning now. It's, uh, but its sources are not those which you might imagine, um, which would be kind of like a, re a resurgent neoconservative faction or what have you. Uh, actually, the, 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 uh, the source um, for this uh, uh, resurgence of McCarthyism is surprisingly what he terms the, 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 the pro-war left, and that is a left that has sort of concentrated around the conflict in Syria specifically and, and which has adopted a very defensive posture on the question of the composition of the Syrian resistance. Now, I, I bring this up for two reasons, I suppose. Firstly, uh, because I wonder if you have views on the extent to which the new McCarthyism has a leftist provenance and that its origins are bound up in the Syrian conflict. And then secondly, uh, I guess because de Boer also makes this other interesting point that these left these pro-war left positions, he says, are, 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 and I quote, less apparent in leftist journals, but much more apparent in, and I quote, the political spaces of social media. So um, where have you been seeing these new McCarthyist discourses at work? Do they, do they have a press? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it is now the, the pro-war left, certainly in the UK, and I think it's the same in the States, but, yeah. you know, made a little different, say, in Europe, continental Europe. The pro-war left is one is the kind of dominant voice yeah. in a lot of mainstream media. You know, I mean, I could obviously go people like Nick Cohen or you know, but we right. could, but it's so I think that's actually the dominant voice. I mean, you have 
you know, say in the States, you have more, you know, magazines such as uh, Jacobin, say, which may have a more critical mm-hmm. take. But certainly in the mainstream media in the UK, the pro-war left is the dominant voice. It's the pro-war kind of progressives. You know, it's incredible. And I actually think this is one of the most important things to discuss. It's like, you know, how the left stopped worrying and learned to love NATO. I mean, <laughs> like, well, how did this happen? I think Deborah is absolutely right. You know, and if you think about it, like in the UK, it's practically, there's only a, the Stop the War Coalition. Yes. Okay, I think it's the only left-wing group. And I have a lot of disagreements. I don't like the, their position on Israel, for example. I think that's quite problematic. But they are the only left-wing group really, who voice opposition yeah. to Western militarism, practically. And I think yeah. it's really interesting, right? You've got this kind of grand coalition between the pro-war left and kind of neoconservatives and neoliberals. And you've got, I think, in the States, you've got the paleo-conservatives, you know, the sort of Pat Buchanan yes, yes. people, you know, who are suddenly the voices of reason, saying, mm-hmm. hey, let's not have war with Russia. That wouldn't be such a good idea. I know, let's stop bombing the Middle East. It's incredible. Or in the UK, you have a really dwindling number of old left, you know, people like Tony Benn, uh, you know, who's dead now, who who died. But, you know, a real shrinking number of kind of old left figures. But the only thing I want to say, so I think Deborah is spot on. And I think that's like the, the most serious, one of the most serious problems for the left. Yeah. You know, um, I think. But what I do want to say is that the pro-war left actually emerged much earlier than Syria. Libya, maybe? Um, And this is something that I've been really interested in as well, around questions of intervention. And it's actually, at the end of the Cold War and the breakup of Yugoslavia, okay, the breakup of Uh, Yugoslavia, if you don't mind going back into history a bit, it's not that distant. No. Uh, This is the key shift, right, for left liberals. This is the key shift. This is the point at which left-wing academics, commentators, the kind of, you know, so-called intelligentsia, embrace Western military intervention, right? This is the, this, the break of Yugoslavia is actually really key for so many things in international relations, kind of public discourses. The breakup of Yugoslavia is essentially framed as the new Holocaust. Mm. Okay, now we can't even begin to, you know, I haven't got, a year to even go into why that's, a, you know, idiocy on a grand it's scale. A, yeah, it's a detailed story. But you know, <laughs> we'll bracket that. But it becomes framed as the new Holocaust, a moral absolute. Okay, and it's there that you see a, re- a total shift in left liberal thinking around military intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly these are our, you know, we can now act for, uh, we act in the world a military intervention can be used for a moral purpose, right? And, and, and that's really what you see. And you had a little blip around the second Gulf War, mm-hmm. you know, where a lot of people suddenly said, oh, hey, actually, maybe Western military intervention isn't that great. But then that sort of petered off. You know, we've had Libya since then, again, supported by, mo- by many, many uh, left-wing people, many progressives. Um, so, yeah, so, so Yugoslavia was kind of a key moment for that, for when the left learned to love NATO, okay, and they've never let let off. 
loving NATO uh, and Western militarism. And I think that's a kind of key issue, really. Mm. And I don't know, maybe, maybe one of the good things, if there can be a good thing to come from the Trump presidency, maybe, yeah. is that there may actually be a bit of a revival yeah. of a tradition of, you know, left-wing anti-war politics. Right. Um, because I think that's that's a sort of serious problem for us, for people on the left, for people who want to be part of progressive politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. So I say, so it, it, definitely, yeah, there are the pro-war left, but it, it actually starts kind of with the breakup of Yugoslavia. That's very interesting. You know, and is that because the war was a new Holocaust? I mean, absolutely not. You yeah. know, it was a terrible, yeah. it was a Awful brutal thing. civil yeah. war about the breakup yeah. of a state. Yeah. And uh, there was a, there's a good anecdote about Boutros Boutros Ghali, okay, mm-hmm. the UN Secretary General. And it said that he lost his job. Basically, he stood in Sarajevo and said, this is a rich man's war. <laughs> so he said, I can, he said, I can point you to 10 conflicts going, ar- going on around the that world are that are yeah. infinite, much worse than that. And he lost his Mm -hmm. job Mm -hmm. at that point you know so no was it because Mm -hmm. it was the most shocking i mean of course it was a terrible civil war you know i don't mean to say yeah it was it was a good time (laughs) but you know was it the most shocking conflict no um yeah but but what it was was absolutely key for this kind of real shift uh both at an intellectual level you know and also in policy terms for states like Britain and America. Um, going back just a little bit uh, on some of your comments, uh, earlier comments, um, and perhaps leaving Yugoslavia and, and Syria aside, um, one of the things is I, I think for most ordinary people looking at this this question, um, you know, this might be the first time that they're, they're, they're hearing um, the idea of a, of a sort of a new McCarthyism, and it might mm. seem kind of incendiary, but for a lot of um, ordinary American voters, uh, you know, especially Democratic voters, the um, the first inkling of, of Russian duplicity here would have begun in and around the time of the, the DNC leaks, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. in the Podesta emails, when a hacker by the name of Guccifer 2.0 had, uh, had sort of somehow gotten into John Podesta's emails and the Democratic National Committee's emails and... Um, you know, used information they found there to undermine Clinton's uh, election chances. And, and a whole sort of aesthetic emerged um, in the news media at that time. Magazines like Esquire were running stories with, you know, very sort of um, <coughs> deliberately stylized Soviet iconography um, in, in the imagery um, and using headlines like how Russia pulled off the biggest election hack in history. It, I think to me what was remarkable in all of this was the entire question of the public service aspect of the leaked information was sort of forgotten about. Um, the DNC leaks broke on July 22nd, right before the Democratic National Convention. And, and, and you know, while nobody denied their authenticity and several major things happened around then, including uh, the, the Democrats apologizing to Bernie Sanders and the resignation of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, yet somehow the story very quickly became one about Russia. And Hillary's response to it was to say actually that it was a personal vendetta uh, from the time she was Secretary of State uh, back in 2011. And Putin had thought she was orchestrating protests against him 
in uh, are in the context of his efforts to run uh, mm-hmm. for a third term as president there. So uh, I guess the question is, you know, do you have views on how come this framing was so easy, almost automatic for Clinton and for, and for mainstream liberal culture in America uh, with relatively yeah, I, little I, evidence? You know, it, it, there's yeah. no cynicism over this at all. Absolutely. It, it, that is, it's absolutely astonishing, but exactly the same in the UK media. It's taken as fact. I mean, there is literally no, you know, I think the only, I've read a couple of critics, you know, obviously yeah. The Intercept has had a couple of critical, well, no, the, okay, I take it, you know, Glenn Greenwald's obviously written a lot about, sure, and, sure. you know, he's no, he, he's no friend of Russia, but he's written a lot about how, you know, there's, there's absolutely no proof. And so, no, I agree. And I think... Yeah, I think the reason is it's been so easy. There's been no critical agent because people want it to be true. People want it to be true. People want it. The political elites, the mainstream media, they want it to be true. And I think because the election of Trump has been such an existential shock, yeah, right to the system. Yeah. I mean, in the states, in Europe, you know, and people feel maybe it's, they, um, it's, it's a, disempowering somehow, and and so to explain this, there have to be these sort of shadowy forces and agendas. Absolutely, it's much easier to think it's a kind of evil external force, right? Right, than the brutal truth that even as even Paul Krugman had to admit, and he's been going mad on the ah, kind of Trump okay. axis. You know, he said we don't know this. our own country. So Krugman was was. I think Paul, I've, I've read a quote from. Yeah. I've read a quote from Paul Krugman saying, you know, the truth is we don't know our own country. Ah. Uh. And there's a, um, it, right, there's a, there's an amazing quote from Andropov in 1983. <laughs> yeah. When he says, we don't know our country anymore. And this kind of goes back to my interests about that separation. Now, it's easier to believe that it was all the sort of machinations of Mm -hmm. Putin and worst case scenario you know Russian hackers gave a load of emails to WikiLeaks that's what we're talking about yeah you know not you know that that's worst case scenario Uh, really revealing stuff that everyone thought about Clinton in the first place which is why she was so unpopular yeah yeah it's not it's not like they necessarily told us anything we hadn't already suspected there was no shocking revelation Exactly. You know, she was already she was already unpopular, and like if you go back and look at it, like the, for a long time, the polls actually showed Trump and Clinton being pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Yes. For a long time, but the if you read any newspaper, whether in the UK or the states, um, if you read any newspaper, right, the, the, there wouldn't there wasn't even a. a conception there wasn't even a hint hey maybe this could happen yeah you know because the mainstream media the political elites literally refused to accept the possibility of a trump win even though before the leaks it was pretty close to call now if the democratic party had been honest with itself without any kind of honest media coverage the headlines would have been how can it be that this lunatic <laughs> is actually presenting a serious challenge to Clinton. Right. Yeah, but we didn't have any of that. And then the results, the results happen. And it suddenly presents like, wow, this is absolutely impossible. It must mm. be Russia. So I think it's that fundamentally that 
the mainstream the media, the political leaders, they want it to be true because it's easier than to think, like, we are seriously in trouble. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, and all you do have the background to the kind of, the background is also the sort of new Cold War and the, you know, tensions between Russia and NATO that have been building up, you know, 2011, if not before. So it's not plucked out of nowhere. You know, the general, there are genuine kind of tensions, but... yeah. Yeah, I think I think basically it was easy because people want it to be true. Do you? Think I don't think it is true. That even uh, just to sort of push that on a little bit, the, um, yeah. the sort of extension of that question. It, uh, there's been all these pieces kind of going around in the last couple of weeks, um, mm. especially like right after the inauguration, that were kind of talking about uh, Trump as a kind of almost evil genius that he uh, yeah. he was generating <laughs> yeah, all right? this kind of chaos. Yeah. to to try to sort of implement uh, some kind of hidden sinister agenda yeah. like he was secretly yeah, yeah. building the death star or something um yeah. Uh, yeah, Sa- yeah sam chris had a piece there on politico yeah. on february 1st t- entitled liberals on the edge of a nervous breakdown yeah, where right, he yeah. sort of invoked this idea that you know looking at the white house today has become a kind of kremlinology yeah. um you know is it, it <sighs> Where is that going to end? You were talking earlier on about, you know, the, the reaction to Trump being more worrying. Yeah, than the, but, is, but is, this is it. No, yeah. I, this is absolutely it. So, like, no one's sitting there. Yeah. See, I mean, God knows there is a lot to criticize Trump about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Where do you start? Policy-wise. Yeah. But what, there, you know, but Trump, but this kind of obsession with Trump being, yeah, the, a kind of Putin plant or... Anything like that, that is absolutely... Or that they basic. have tapes, uh, sex tapes or urine tapes yeah. even um, on all, him somehow. Exactly, that, it, that, it's, that all, it, it's all explained because Putin's trying to, you know, blackmail Trump. I mean, that is exactly the problem that I think is worse than Trump. Yeah. Because what that isn't is yeah. any kind of political uh, argument you know, engagement, uh, that's not trying to build a political alternative. Right. That is just that flight to fantasy. Yeah, well, Putin did it, and that's where the problem lies. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and maybe post-emails, had Clinton actually gone out a little bit more (laughs) into the country Mm -hmm. and thought about her policies a bit more, rather than fighting Putin the election results would have been different. And, of course, let's not forget, she did actually win the popular vote. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because of, the obviously, the way the electoral system works, just as in the UK with first-past-the-post, the, yeah. you know, the majority, the person who gets the majority votes doesn't necessarily win as such. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so I agree, absolutely. It is absolutely a kind of nervous breakdown. And that is a serious problem because right, the liberals and the political elites might be having a nervous breakdown, a, you know, kind of existential crisis, but that's not going to... That, you know, this, I can only imagine that the kind of political elite reaction is just going to strengthen Trump, surely... Yeah. You know, think, think. say the average person who voted for Trump and because they wanted change, yes. they were sick of the political establishment yes. and actually 
what's often ignored is that lots of people who, who voted for Obama twice because he represented change actually also then voted for Trump. You know, so it's not that there's some kind of racist backlash or something, but people are very just as very sick of, you know, kind of politics as usual and so on. But I can't imagine that the kind of reaction, the hysterical reaction is going to do anything other than make people who voted for Trump saying, say, yeah, we're right. You see, these people, even when we cast our democratic vote, they're telling us it wasn't a democratic vote. Yeah. It was Putin who did it. You know, so so I don't know, but I would have thought the way that kind of comes down to the ordinary voter is a is that it simply proves to them mm-hmm. the extent to which the political establishment and the Washington Post and everyone actually genuinely does want, you know, does not care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've, they've you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of just... It's become fake news. Yeah, it just... It, don't, it just sort of emphasises, like, wow, the political elite really does kind of despise us. Even when we told America, you know, even when we told them what we want through yeah. the ballot box, legitimately, yeah, that result is now being delegitimised. You know, so I think the reaction is, I, well, I don't think that the kind of democratic party is really thinking through what it's the direction it's pushing america in through the reaction yeah and yeah, that yeah. to me is yeah quite do you um, yeah i don't know i genuinely don't know where that where that one will end i think um you know, I, I'm I'm kind of prompted to to ask maybe what would be a, an awkward question at this at this point, um, because uh, you know, going back to the to the left, we were talking about the anti-war left earlier. Um, um, one of the ways in which this hysteria could arguably be seen to be playing out is, um, uh, oh God, I mean, I think I think I'm going to get some heat for asking you this question. Um, it's been a couple of weeks now since we had uh, those pretty spectacular protests um, over the plans of Milo Yiannopoulos to to dox oh, yeah. immigrants at the um, yeah. a show he was going to put on at UC Berkeley. Yeah. But um, you know, w- watching some of the videos that came out of that um, mm-hmm. night and the the protests, um, you know, there were there was scenes ostensibly showing anti-fascist activists pepper spraying non-violent yeah. Trump supporters. There was a girl in the middle of a television interview pepper sprayed in the face. And a couple of yeah. videos even showed that, uh, you know, what, what what looked like an unconscious Trump supporter being beaten um, with metal. I saw, batons, I right? saw that like, and I thought, yeah, you, you are, you are winning it for Trump. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, that is the, the response of deplorables. To, yeah. Sorry. But the, just to, to sort of put it out there though, that the, you know, defenders yeah. like, um, um, George uh, Kicciarello Marr, um, you know, have sort of accused uh, their fellow left critics on this of, mm-hmm. of of engaging in free speech absolutism. In fact, we're not even dignified with the, the term leftist. We're, we're called liberals in this because we're free <laughs> speech absolutists. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, sort of ignorant of the fact that we must stop the spread of fascism by any means necessary. Yeah. And this is very, very widespread. I mean, I've listened to just like so many podcasts, even 
podcasts of, um, among circles that I'm sort of otherwise sort of currently personally excited about right now, like Chapel Trap House and all these sorts of places, you know, there's a, there's a real sort of sense that there's an, a tactical urgency right now and, a, and that we should be celebrating with great joy the punching of Nazis. Um, so it, it might seem like a stretch, but isn't this whole thing kind of weirdly resonant with the Russian narrative we've been talking about. I mean, the the unchallenged assumption is yeah. that Trump is a Putin stooge and that Yiannopoulos actually is a fascist. And therefore, yeah. Um, yeah, anything, you know, his entire anti-establishment narrative yeah. um, that sort of put him in the White House is, is yeah. to be dismissed because it's fascist somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously we can discuss it, you know, is Trump a fascist? No. <laughs> is Trump right. an Neither is Milo. No. Milo. Either, My, yeah, is Milo a Nazi or a fascist? No, you know, it? as it, he, do, he horrible, doesn't even have such a kind of yeah. coherent <laughs> idea. But so, yeah, so there's that whole discussion, which again I think is just so symptomatic of the problem, right, yeah. in the left. Yeah, I mean, like seriously, God save us if there ever was a genuine fascist mm-hmm. challenge, because we've already spent all our energy on shouting that my you know yeah. milo yeah is kind of grammar school boy from uh, you know is a is a fascist it's but, a weird thing <laughs> british but, grammar but, uh, school boy makes yeah i don't think it's too much of a stretch at all and it's symptomatic of the same problem so exactly i think it's you're absolutely dead right you know whilst the establishment shouts russia yeah you know kind of just normal uh, you know left-wing people democrats so so shout fascist you know and until we start actually winning the argument and stop shouting fascist at people and pepper spraying people who might not who don't think abortion is a good thing you know yeah I support abortion, but I also think that it's legitimate Political to view. argue right. yeah. against it. Yeah. And I don't think that's a fascist position. Right. You know, and I think until we actually accept that and start trying to have arguments, basically the left is irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's I think that's, it's a really... Difficult time. I think the left has have lost at the moment. What's it? Um, you know, and I think. Well, yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to ask you quickly on the point. Like, so what's all this looking like? You're you're in the UK right now. I'm in America. What's yeah. The, uh, I was reading in a, in, a, in the news last week that that Giver Hofstadt, the, uh, the the leader of the ALDE group in the European Parliament, and uh, yeah. apparently also a, a negotiator in the Brexit um, pr- proceedings. The um, sort of suggesting that uh, Putin, Trump and Erdogan are, are, and I quote, working together more or less on European soil to destroy the European model. Uh, what's Yeah, those would be some about? meetings. What's, where's that all well, going? So we have exactly the same, a sort of pale imitation of the American uh, discourse. No, we've, so we've got coming up, we've got French, German and Dutch elections. Right. Okay, and the argument is being made Every day, mm. Putin, it will be meddling in those elections. Okay, Emmanuel Macron now has got in on the act and saying, you know, of course, we know that Putin's going to be meddling. Now, just as in um, the Americas, of course, there is no evidence 
for this. And in fact, it's very interesting. The German intelligence agencies, there was an article in Newsweek saying the German intelligence agencies have basically said, yeah, there is no evidence that Russia is many. But of course, it doesn't stop the headlines. But it's exactly the same situation as for the states. It's just simply an, an evasion and an abandonment of trying to win the political yeah, sure, political debate. The political argument. Now, Marie Le Pen, for all I know, might be receiving sacks of Moscow gold. Right. Okay. She might. You know. Yeah. She might be. Yeah. She might be getting it on a daily basis. It has nothing to do. <clears throat> with why the Front National has support. Mm. You know, this is, the, this is the key point. Now, she's obviously speaking to some fears and uh, concerns, you know, that some, uh, uh, you know, minority of French people have yeah. around uh, the economy, for example, uh, immigration, to some extent, you know, and there is a, and I'm not saying that therefore her approach is right. There is a problem with, there's quite a problem with jihadis in France, for example, homegrown jihadis. Um, and she's tapping right into those fears. And what's actually really interesting, I read a, quite an interesting article a while ago that was pointing out that lots of the populist right-wing parties in Europe are taking on a lot of the old left ideas, right. employment, yeah. secularism. Yeah. You know, a kind of a defense against sort of multiculturalism seen as, you know, having to, you know, maybe uh, accept worsening women's rights in mm-hmm. the name of... Mm-hmm you know, being multiculturalist. There was a really interesting article, I forget who it was by in The Guardian, saying what you're actually seeing in a lot of the, for a lot of the European right-wing populist parties is that they are now attracting voters who historically would have been voting, you know, Labour, et cetera. So so Jewish voters, for example, um, uh, people who are gay, you know, because what they are worried about Certain trends. Now, I'm not saying therefore that's the right path, but mm. that needs to be engaged with and a discussion needs to be had kind of in a party, in a country. And that's what's not happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by shout, by blaming it on Russia before the elections have even happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just extraordinary. So if there is a result we don't like, it's going to be because of Russia. Um, not to ask the sort of cliched question, but like, what? so so what, I mean, apart from trying to sort of talk about this and, and get the, uh, the, al- the alternative message out, I mean, what, what, what's, um, what's the likely prognostication here? I mean, the, the, the left suddenly becomes complicit in a, in a deep state takeover of, of, <laughs> of um, you know, you know, we we find our common ground with Bill Crystal, who was tweeting the other day <laughs> that he wants the he'd be he's not you know he'd take a deep state over the Trump state any day of the week kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's, it ends up being a weird the kind of pro-war left and the neocons end yeah. up forming this weird grand coalition. Yeah. Um. You know where the 
yeah, in my sort of dark moments, that's what it feels like as well. Yeah. You know, that the that the that many on the left well no, I think that's explicitly so. Right. Would far rather yeah, the CIA than Trump. Yeah. And I think that is a catastrophic mistake. Yeah. Yeah. That's a catastrophic choice because whatever we think of Trump, he can be voted out. Yeah. <laughs> but now one can go too far with the deep state thing, but there is there is a reality to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, the deep state, and you don't, you know, you can just, you don't have to go too far to, re, you know, just read sort of memoirs, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. It, you know, you don't have to go it's too not, far. We're to not in conspiracy is, theory territory here. I mean, we're not, yeah. this is not an episode of the X-Files. The deep state is... You know, when we when we say that, and we're talking about yeah. really existing factions within yeah. intelligence communities that have vested interests and can be explained. Ex- exactly, know, exactly. Yeah. So exactly. So yeah. So you know, one can go too far, but there there is a reality there. Yeah. But the other thing about the deep state is, or the intelligence community, yeah, is obviously they do kind of act. You know, they do act within a political context. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I. Don't think it would be too pushing it too much to see to argue. I think we're seeing a bit of a soft coup going on. Yeah, maybe Flint's the first a political assassination of sorts. And that, to me, is a real serious problem. And that is being done by the intelligence services, but they're not acting rogue here. Right, they're you because know, the you know popular I mean? will is behind them, or what have you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're not going rogue in this case, although there are plenty of examples, examples where they yeah. do. Yeah. But this is now, and this is the real problem where, like, the majority of the political class and even people who think of themselves as progressive will essentially be, and again, I don't think people are thinking this through, right. supporting kind of soft coup against an, the elected president. Mm of america yeah i don't know be careful what you wish for i guess yeah yeah. well thanks tara that's been a great discussion today really uh enjoyed uh listening to your views um uh we uh thanks so much for asking that's been a great discussion hopefully we can follow up on this story again with you sometime in the future i i I suspect it's not going away anytime soon (laughs) All right. Have a good right, day. Great, thank talk you. to you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, uh, please consider stopping by iTunes and leaving us a favorable review. It makes all the difference as we try to promote this uh, podcast and get the word out. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.